me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, which if you're using the Bibles in the benches, can be found on page 1,625. Let me just remind you where we've come in Luke's Gospel to this point. It's important for our understanding of chapter 16. You'll remember that the three parables as one parable in chapter 15 called us to identify ourselves as those who were hopelessly lost and sinful. Right? We're like that pathetic sheep who had wandered off and could do nothing to bring itself back. We're like that lost and dusty coin in the house. or We're like that rebellious a young son who had forsaken his father and had no interest in coming back. And yet, the three parables as one also called us to rejoice that God in Christ, at great expense and humiliation to himself, pursued us, and not only pursued us, but found us, and welcomed us joyfully uh, back into his kingdom. Uh, He was inconvenienced and humiliated, just like that shepherd who has to lead 99 and go after this one stubborn sheep, just like that woman who has to clean out the whole house just to find this, you know, tenth of what she has on hand, the cash that she has on hand. Like that good father who humiliates himself in front of the whole village to run out and welcome home the son and throws that great wedding or that great uh, celebration, that feast, killing the fatted calf. This is the Rejoicing that we have, having admitted that we are sinful and hopelessly lost in and of ourselves, right? I want you to remember, maybe you've forgotten this by now, that that story, those three stories as one story, was addressed particularly to the Pharisees. And we know that because it tells us that at the beginning, but also because the Pharisees have a special place in that third aspect of that one story, right? You remember that they were characterized as the older lost son, the self-righteous one who would never think of himself as a lost sheep or the lost coin and certainly not as the lost younger brother, but saw himself as obedient. And Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees to cut through that kind of self-righteousness and to tell them to acknowledge their true need and then to receive his joyful salvation through the work of the Lord Jesus. Now what happens in chapter 16 is that Jesus turns to His disciples in particular to speak with them. Before we read the whole text, look at the first verse. Jesus told His disciples. So He turns from speaking directly to the Pharisees, now to the disciples. But what you'll notice is that Jesus is speaking to the disciples within earshot still of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees can still hear him. And what you'll see by the middle of the story is that Jesus actually turns to, to directly address the Pharisees. But he does that for a specific reason. What he's going to do is castigate the Pharisees for their evil beliefs and their evil actions in the hearing of the disciples so that the disciples will see, okay, if I have seen myself as a hopelessly lost sheep, 
then I want to act and believe according to the Jesus who has saved me by His grace. And when I see Him condemning the beliefs and the actions of the Pharisees, then I ought to look at those beliefs and look at those actions and I should not be that way. So really what Jesus is doing in this passage is speaking to the disciples, to you, who have already acknowledged that you were sinful and hopelessly lost. And he says, now look at how the Pharisees think and act and I don't want you to be that way. That's what's going on. And so we turn to hear from the Word of God. Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, well, What shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. And he asked the first one, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, Well, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. And then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. And the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. And what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus Lazarus received bad things. 
But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also come to they will not also come to this place of torment and Abraham replied well they have Moses and the prophets let them listen to them no father Abraham he said but if someone from the dead goes to them then they would repent and he said to them if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead so far the reading of God's holy word Jesus begins his teaching to his disciples by telling another story, another parable. A parable, by the way, which has puzzled interpreters of the scripture all the way back even into the early church. I mean, the main problem with this first parable in terms of our understanding is that we can't figure out exactly what this manager was doing in settling these accounts after he knew he was getting fired. I mean, there could be a number of different ways to explain it. He may have been actually robbing his master of what was owed to him because he was facing the fact that no matter what he did, even if he settled these accounts fairly, he was going to be put out into the street. So he might as well settle the accounts dishonestly in order to gain the favor of those who were benefiting from it so that when he got put out into the street, he would have somewhere to go. Now the problem with that understanding is the master in the story, you see that in verse 8 at the beginning, commends the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And now why would a manager or a master commend his manager for cheating him out of money just to cover his own hide? Well, it could be, and it's very possible, that when it says that the master commended the dishonest manager, he wasn't patting him on the back and congratulating him for a job well done, but he was just basically saying, you know what, (laughs) it is what it is, and I guess I just have to live with it. That was a pretty smooth move, because I know now you will have a place to go once you're fired. It doesn't mean he was happy about it. Or it could be that this shrewd manager of this master's funds was showing legitimate generosity to the master's debtors and was banking on the fact that once he had displayed this generosity without asking on the master's behalf, that there would be no way for the master to come into the community and now say, no, 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 that was wrong. I wasn't being generous. He made that all up himself. And I demand that the balance of what was really owed me be paid to me. So this manager could have been very clever and the master once realizing that, that he was very crafty, that he had figured out a way to force the master not to say anything and on the other hand, make the people accept him once he was fired. The manager could just, or the master, could just be commending him for that a wise business decision. And there's been all kinds of other proposed interpretations, but here is the main point of the story and I don't want us to miss it the main point is that there is a man who sees his future and in this case his future is what? 
being fired and being put out into the street. And he can't dig, he's not strong enough, it doesn't pay enough. He has too much dignity to beg, and it's not going to make enough anyway to meet his bills. So he sees his future very clearly, which in his case is being fired and put out in the street. And in light of his certain future, knowing his future, he acts in the best possible way that is consistent with where he will be in the future. He looks his absolute certain future in the face and he looks at his decisions and he acts in the way that is most consistent with the future that he is facing. The best possible way considering the future that he is facing. Now here's where you come in as the disciples of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. The second half of the verse. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The manager is called what? A person of this world. A son of the world. And he sees his future and he acts in the best way according to the future. We're not talking about whether it was morally acceptable or not. We're just talking about someone looking at their certain future and acting in the best way possible. And people, in this case this manager out in the world, does that very clearly, right? And you and me, the disciples of Jesus, are referenced here as the people of the light or the sons of the light, meaning people whose certain future is what? The glorification. The glorification that Jesus has been speaking about all along. The great wedding feast of the Lamb. When all of our sins and temptations will be stripped off completely. When all of our needs will be satisfied. When if we are dead, we will come out of the grave and receive the glorified body. When if we are sick, we will be made well. When we have consequences of things that we have struggled with in our lives, we will be relieved completely from them. If we are discouraged or outcast or oppressed, we will be satisfied and joyous. You know, the opposite of everything that we experience in this life, which is one death and darkness and discouragement after another. That is our certain future, the children of the light. And so what Jesus is calling us to do by telling this parable is, just like this common man in the world saw his certain future and aligned his actions with that future in the best, most consistent way, you, children of the glorification, align your lives in the best way, in the most consistent way, knowing that that is where you are going. As certainly as that manager was going to be fired and find himself out in the street, so he aligned his actions accordingly, so certainly you who will be in the glorification by the grace of God through Christ, align your beliefs and your actions right now according to that certain end. In the way that is most consistent, actually believing that you will be glorified someday. That is what Jesus is calling us to do. And the obvious question that comes to our mind is, so what are we supposed to do? I mean, what is it exactly, Jesus? What, what does it mean here? What are you telling us about the most consistent way to align our belief and our lives 
knowing that our future is the glorification, right? Because we already remember. We've admitted that we were that lost sheep that was saved. We didn't deserve the glorification. We weren't on track to it. We had no interest in it. In fact, we hated the light. But He came and found us, didn't He? And He saved us. And now He tells us, because I have saved you, and because you know what's coming, that great feast, at the end, align yourselves with it. And our question is, well, Jesus, what is it that we are supposed to do? What is it that we are supposed to do? Look at verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. First half of verse 9, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Now what does that mean? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Jesus is talking about what? He's talking about money. He's talking about our possessions. He's talking about using our money, our wealth, in a way that is most consistent knowing that later we will be in the glorification. He is talking about us using the wealth that He gives us to share with those who are in need who will be in the glorification with us. He will develop this theme further as you'll see so that you know that this is what He's talking about. And all of the apostles, some of them, hearing Him right now as He's preaching this, will write on this later. They will write things, of course Paul's not with them at this time, but Paul says things later like, As we have therefore every opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. 2 Corinthians 8, you've heard this not that long ago. Brothers, we want to remind you of the grace of God bestowed on the Macedonian churches, how they were poor, and yet in their great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and in their deep poverty abounded into the riches of their generosity. So I tell you, beyond their power, they were willing to give of themselves, praying with us, pleading with us that we would receive their financial gift and take upon us the fellowship of ministering to the saints. You see, they had heard about the church planting going on through Paul and his uh, co-workers. They had heard about the saints that were suffering in Jerusalem and they abounded in generosity and the disciples, the apostles, were preaching this as they went out to all of the Christians based on what they heard from Jesus in one place here which was people of God, if you know that you are going to be in the glorification in the end and you will have all of the joys that you can imagine and you will be fully satisfied and any need that you have then will be relieved and you will be uh, taken away from all of your distress in this life and all of your brothers and sisters who you know now, even those who are struggling will be there with you, then you will just joyfully right now, won't you, give of your worldly wealth to support them when they are in need. To gain friends for yourself. That's what it means. To support with good stewardship of your own wealth the advancement of the kingdom and the relief of the saints who have diaconal needs. The sharing of your good earthly blessings with others so that they can enjoy the things that you have been given by God's kindness to you. This is what He is telling us 
is the wise and most consistent action for us, knowing that our certain future is the glorification. I mean, it's not like you're having to question whether or not you are going to be provided for in the end, so you better hoard up everything you can now. Or it's not like you believe that he who dies with the most toys wins, like all of your pleasures and joys and wealth and dislike is what really matters, so you're going to cling to it. He says, no, 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 no. If you know your future, and your future is the glorification, when you will have all of the new heavens and the new earth, then you will what? You will be generous. You'll be a good steward of the worldly wealth that you have. And in fact, as he goes on to say, we'll examine this here, it is just a fact that those who believe that they will be glorified increasingly in their own character will be good stewards of the money, of the wealth that God gives to them, and will grow in their generosity for the advancement of the kingdom and for supporting the diaconal needs of those who have need in the church. I want to show you this. I'm not making this up. Look at verses 10 through 13. Now, did you hear what I said? It is a fact that those who believe that they will be glorified, that they believe that is their certain future, it is a fact. It is Impossible not to be the case that those who believe that will grow in their generosity in the use of their wealth for the advancement of the kingdom and the relief of the saints. Jesus says that, says as much in verses 10 through 13. Look at this. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy in someone else's property, that means the Lord's who has given all of your worldly wealth, such as it is, to you, who will give you property of your own? Meaning what? It's a fact that you will not receive the great blessings of the glorification if it's not evidence in your life, the evidence of true faith, that you increase in your generosity in giving of your worldly wealth for the advancement of the kingdom, that your stewardship is in line more and more, that you are giving for those who don't have while you do have. That's just how it is. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, the natural outflow of the heart that has received Christ by His grace, the heart that has said, Jesus, I am hopelessly sinful and lost like that stupid sheep, like that dusty coin, like that younger son, even self-righteous like the older son, and I cry out to you, have mercy on me, and you receive His blessings, and you know that the glorification is coming to you, the natural outflow of that true faith is what? Sanctification. In this particular case, the sanctification, the gratitude of good stewardship and generosity. You cannot serve both God and money. Now remember, the Pharisees are within earshot of all of this. And now this is very important. The Pharisees are within earshot of all of this. And remember why? Because Jesus wants to show us the actions and the beliefs of the Pharisees. And for us to see that and say, okay, that's wrong. 
I should not be that way. I should be the other way. And it's especially as pertains to money. But I want you to think about why he would do that. I mean, you think it would be enough, wouldn't it, for the disciples, for you and for me, to recognize that we're hopelessly and simply lost and that Jesus saved us so that we would have no problem just opening our whole lives to the service of Christ and particularly here the giving of our money generously and being good stewards, right? But of course, that's just not true. Okay, And this is why he sets up the Pharisees here. He condemns them directly in the hearing of the disciples is because he knows the disciples. He knows that you, and I believe this, and you believe this, this word is coming to you this morning because you, like the disciples and like me, have a problem with this. It is our tendency, even as those who are quick to confess that we were hopelessly lost and that we have been saved by the grace of God and that the glorification is coming for us, it is our tendency to still be stingy and greedy. And when we hear this kind of text or we hear this kind of preaching, immediately our thoughts go, oh, here we go again. Jesus is saying something, but the church is interpreting it to get into our pocketbooks and... I am doing as much as I can and I don't have that money anyway and so just leave me alone. And Jesus wants to take that kind of thinking and say, okay, here it is. You know what that kind of thinking is? That's like the unbelieving Pharisees. That's like people who are acting as if they don't really believe that they were hopelessly lost and saved by His grace and have everything coming to them in the glorification. So listen, if you're thinking in your mind as I was and still am reading through this text trying to justify myself and look at a way well I think I am doing everything you're saying Jesus and being as generous as I should and a good steward as I ought to be then wipe that thinking out because that's going to be how he exposes the Pharisees right here you'll see this you'll see this look at verse uh, 14 the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus you know what the Pharisees had? They had a deep-seated love of money. And therefore, when Jesus calls His disciples to have a godly view and use of money, they sneered at Him. They were filled with anger in their hearts at Him. Now, stop a minute and think about what the Pharisees actually believed about money. Because then you can understand how Jesus rebukes them. The Pharisees, remember first of all, thought that they were truthfully obedient to the law of God. For example, they would look in the scripture and they would see the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Or they would see the commandment, Thou shalt not covet. And they honestly thought that they were obedient to the law. And the way that they came to that conclusion is they took the laws and they reinterpreted them or misinterpreted them. So when it said, for example, thou shalt not commit adultery, all that meant to them was that they would not physically commit the act of intimacy with a spouse or with someone beside their spouse who was not their spouse at the time. All the while... 
They had lustful thoughts in their minds, which is a breaking of that commandment. All the while, they were passing laws in society so that they could quickly, say, put away a woman in divorce so that they could marry another one and have relations with her and so that they wouldn't be guilty of adultery. But they had no reason or no grounds to put away that woman. And you see, they devised all of these systems to convince themselves that they actually had been obedient to the command thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt not covet but of course they were guilty in their thoughts and their words and also their actions all the whole time right and they were falling into a comfort zone also thinking that they had been obedient because everybody in the population who they put under their thumbs with all their interpretations of the law and legalism they had been looked upon by those people as the ones who were holy and righteous. You know, these were the false shepherds, but the sheep didn't know it. The sheep were just going along with what they were being told. And these people, wow, they know Hebrew. They've studied the Old Testament better than I have. They must know what God uh, requires. And they seem to be the ones who are obedient. And if we just imitate them, then God will accept us. So they were getting the affirmation of the people in the world. And so they believed they were being obedient also. Now further, because of their obedience as they saw it to the law of Moses, they believed that God was rewarding them in their lifetimes with financial wealth and ease of life. They were being obedient as they thought to the law of Moses and therefore God had promised to bless them, they thought, in their life now. So when they had a measure of wealth, what was that? That was further, in their minds, affirmation by God that they were doing what was right. And not only did they expect or know, because of their obedience, that they were going to be rewarded in this life, they were going to have God come to them at some point and deliver them from all of the oppression and all of the filth of the Roman government and bring them in ultimately to the new heavens and the new earth where they, above all people, would have the highest privilege because of their obedience. And if they happened to die before that great day came, then they would go down to Abraham's side, be with their father Abraham, who was blessed by God and was waiting himself for the glorification with all of the righteous, with all of the most obedient, most highly privileged ones. This is what the Pharisees believed. And what does Jesus say to them? Look at verse 15. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. You justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. Listen, I don't want you Pharisees to look at the fact that the community around you holds you up as the great protectors and interpreters of the law of God. It doesn't matter because God knows your heart. Look at verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of, the law, uh, of a pen to drop out of the law. Meaning this, you will answer to the law of God, not your twisted interpretations of it. But if you have not been obedient to the law, you will not be blessed by the law. So you shouldn't think that way. Verse 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus says another form of this somewhere else when he says, Look, you think you're being obedient to that command, don't commit adultery. But he who even looks at a woman lustfully in his heart is guilty of breaking the command. What he's telling the Pharisees, first of all, is, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what others think, but you are not obedient to the law. You're lawbreakers. 
That's the first thing he says. And then, verse 15, the second half, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. You think that because you have worldly wealth and ease of life now and that everybody looks at you and says that must be God being favorable toward you. You think that you're right with me because of it and I tell you that that is detestable to me. I mean the idea, the audacity for you to think that you have been obedient, number one, and number two, that you are having ease of life and worldly wealth compared to some of the other classes in society because of your obedience is so evil and the Lord hates it. And verse 25 in the midst of the parable and by the way this is a parable so some of the details of how hell works and heaven works are not meant to be taken as systematic theological truths okay but verse 25 son remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in agony so I don't want you to think Pharisees as you see in this story that your worldly wealth is an expression of your spiritual condition that I have approved you in fact it's the opposite in your case your self-righteousness is hardening yourself in your heart and you're enjoying your worldly wealth and the opposite will be what you receive in eternity. And it's funny, you know, the parable of Lazarus, if you think about it, it tells the Pharisees, I mean, what they expect about who God will receive is completely the opposite of who God receives in this story. Think about Lazarus. I mean, if you're a Pharisee and you believe that God approves you or gives you ease of life and financial gain in this life because of your obedience. Then Lazarus, when you look at his life, I mean, this guy is full of sores. You have dogs licking his sores. I mean, this is how pathetic this man is. If we go into some of the details of some of the subtleties of the parable, I mean, this man is so weak that it... Let's see if we can find the language there. Look at verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Now, notice that. He was laid at the gate. Meaning, if this guy probably couldn't even walk. He was so disfigured and lame and pathetic and hopeless that he was laid at the gate here. Now, a Pharisee looks at a guy like Lazarus and says what? Well, it's obvious. This guy must be disobedient to God's law. I mean, because, you know, if he was obedient like me, he would have some measure of earthly wealth. He would have some measure of ease of life. And Jesus says, No. That's not how the system works. I mean, this is the last person that a Pharisee would believe could be approved by God. Now, why was Jesus combating the evil of the Pharisees? It's because you and I are tempted to think and live the same way and it is not fitting for the disciples of Christ to believe this. Christians in the United States of America enjoy the kind of worldly wealth that has never been seen, even the middle class, that has never been seen in the history of mankind and many will be quick to say it is the Lord who has blessed us which is good but sometimes what they mean by that is what? That I have done 
what is good in the eyes of God and He has rewarded me for what I have done. And in its extreme form, of course, it's preached that if you have enough faith and you have enough obedience, then the Lord will approve you and give you wealth and health and happiness. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's sinful arrogance. If you believe this morning, if you believe this morning that the reason that you have good things is because you have been more obedient to God than somebody else, then you better repent from that. That is an arrogant, sinful lie. And you say, but wait a minute, I mean, but I mean, it isn't it true that I've worked hard? I mean, I look around and maybe I've worked hard, and so I have a better position and a better salary. And I look at some other people around me, and I mean, I see a lot of them that didn't work very hard, and that's why they're in the position that they're in. And so is it okay to just say, well, I mean, isn't what I have the consequence of what I've done? And in that sense, it's okay to say that, isn't it? Because the Lord has established a world in which things work generally according to a pattern. But even in that case, would you dare to say that because God, by His common grace, has given you certain gifts, and by His common grace has also made you industrious, and has happened to give you some things through your hard work, that is, you're the one who is to receive the credit because somehow you are spiritually better than someone who isn't? And what about all those people who work... 10, 100 times as hard as we do in this country. Even the hardest worker hearing the sermon this morning. What about those people who work 100 times as hard as we do? Slaving all of their days and live in absolute poverty. And some of them are Christians. And are drinking toxic water that gives them cancer just so that they can stay alive to die a horrible death. And we're going to say that we're spiritually better than these people? Some No. Jesus says, I know you disciples, you tend to be arrogant about the things that you gain. About your worldly possessions and that you deserve it and that you are approved by God because you have it. And you better wipe that out of your thinking, Jesus says. That is what unbelievers believe. Or worse, Pharisees. And of course... We're tempted to be greedy. We are tempted to be like the description of the Pharisees in verse 14, the ones who love money, and sneer at the thought of anybody telling us that we are called to be selfless and generous, to overflow in the joy and the privilege of giving abundantly to the kingdom of Christ and for the needs of those who will be in the glorification with us because money is where we really get hit in the gut money is the acid test of our sanctification and we don't like Jesus let alone his servants challenging us to be good stewards and to use our wealth as if we really believe the certain future of the glorification that is coming. And you know, of course, it's always self-righteousness that gives cause to sin. Self-righteousness and immorality are 
strange and ugly bedfellows. You know, it's the time when you forget about how hopelessly lost and desperately lost and what your end was. It's the time that you forget that when you get stingy. Isn't it? Because when you're reminded of who you really are and how disobedient you are to the law of God, when you wipe away all the self-justifying things and the I'm better than him and the I'm better than her and at least I'm not that bad and wow, we really got problems with those people in the church but thank God I'm not like that one. You see, that's when immorality is there. That's when the greed and the stinginess and the bad stewardship creeps in. Or maybe you're someone who legitimately is very needy and poor. And maybe your temptation is to think, well, God must not accept me. Because look at my condition. He must not approve of me. He must have forgotten me. Because of my financial distress, my difficulty in my life. And what does Jesus say to you? Uh Uh-uh. You get rid of that arrogance too. Your problems are not so large that the Lord Jesus Christ in His great love for you has come and pursued you and has saved you and will usher you into the glorification also. Outward things which make men like you or accept you or make you good in this society are irrelevant to God in terms of whether or not you will stand Him in the glorification. If you are poor and needy this morning, I tell you that you will have everything and you will be satisfied in the glorification and you ought not to doubt it. And for those of us with worldly wealth, don't be like the Pharisees. And to that, all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for pursuing and saving us and joyfully leading us into the glorification with the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, the use of our worldly wealth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.